speaks to that woman, Geralt. My mother? No, Calanthe, I presume she had a choice. Or perhaps she didn't, no, but she did. A suitable spell or elixir would have been sufficient. A choice. A choice which should be respected, for it is the holy and irrefutable right of every woman. Emotions are unimportant here. She had the irrefutable right to her decision, and she took it. And that's just a quote from Sword of Destiny, from something more that we wanted to share at the start of the podcast for no particular reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, welcome back to the podcast surprise, everyone. While we are not a political podcast, speak for all of us here that we believe strongly in a woman's right to choose. As Andre Subkowski, as it turns out. Absolutely. <laughs> Geralt of Rivia is pro-choice, and I don't know why you would not want to be on his team. So, <laughs> uh, Welcome back to the podcast surprise. We're super excited to be here. We've been talking about this behind the scenes for a while and with you guys lot of elves chapter one we're into the main novels we did the tv stuff for a little bit there we of course did the short stories now we're getting into the main plot super super excited to be here how are you guys doing especially you Miguel. how are you doing today my friend i'm good i'm good it's summer it's hot i enjoy it some <laughs> things are not as good but you know what let's focus on the positives and make things better yeah, like the fact that we get to talk about this great fun book series here tonight. That's certainly a positive, a good example of such. So, yeah, we're going to keep a familiar structure. If you're a regular listener, if you've heard our short story coverage or our TV show coverage, we've got familiar structure, synopsis, reactions, craft, characters, lore, funny stuff. But we'll also do a little bit of book to show. We'll, we'll keep that in a single section as much as possible we don't have a whole lot to say about the show but we'll uh, we'll throw in some talk here and there because there's some interesting crossover that's well, pretty good accuracy here from book to show stuff so we don't have a time to cover other uh, some d differences it's gonna flow just a tad bit different since short stories are a little bit more contained but it'll be the same fun loving podcast surprise <laughs> Under the great tree Blairobaris, the oldest oak on the continent, Dandelion has just given a moving performance. There are people of all races and social classes present, and it appears to have been pleasing to them all. Many eyes are wet from tears, but only a few moments pass before the reverie breaks and the arguments begin. The debates are centered on Dandelion's lyrics, which mention the fates of Geralt, Yennefer, and Ciri. They quibble over love, destiny, whether or not those people are even alive, how they were killed, or whether they even existed in the first place. They yell about race, the battles of Sodden and Marnadal, what Nilfgaard will do next, why they came, and why they might come again. They agree on very little other than the quality of Dandelion's performance, which makes him an unofficial arbiter of sorts. But when they turn to ask him for clarification, code for settle our arguments for us, they realize he's gone. He's moved on to an establishment called Mama Lantieri's, where he's unloading some of the coin he just earned with great efficiency. Then a man he doesn't know approaches him, and at first he expects it's an agent from Dykstra. But it is not. It is Rance a Nilfgaardian sorcerer and psychopath, and man whose name can be pronounced many ways without being sure if you're right. Ryans was at the performance, and unlike the arguing masses, he saw Dandelion leave and followed him. Out of sight of others, he employs the classic offer of gold or steel. Take this bribe or get tortured. One way or another, he's going to get what he wants, and what he wants to know is where is Cirilla? 
Luckily for Dandelion, Yennefer was also watching Dandelion's performance and also followed when he snuck off. Unlike Rian, she really does have a message from Dykstra, and he wants an update, a report, not in poetic verse, but in prose. And Yennefer has a message of her own, stop talking about Ciri. Dandelion needs little convincing, given that she has just saved him from torture and death from someone asking about where Siri is. Rians has even threatened to cut his hands or burn his hands off, which would deprive us all of his lovely playing talents, and we can't have that. The story is just getting started, and Dandelion has many more songs to sing of the events to come. Rians escapes thanks to his mysterious master, but not before Yennefer gives him a wound that she says will require effective burn elixirs and leave him marked for some time. They agree that Geralt must be warned of this threat. They both know he's at Kaer Morin, but Dandelion doesn't know where that is. Yennefer does, but she doesn't want to go uninvited. We leave them in that state of uncertainty about how to proceed as the narrative shifts to Kaer Morin. But before that, on the way to Kaer Morin, Ciri is filled with fear. And it's no wonder... Sintra is burning all around her, and she sees and hears people dying as the carnage unfolds. It is vivid and terrible. A loyal knight dutifully tries to carry her to safety through the chaos, but the black knight with the bird of prey feathers is in pursuit. Her would-be savior is killed, and then he has her. But then she awakens, uncertain of what he did to her. It was a dream, Geralt reminds her. And though he's right, it was a dream. It seems to be a dream of what really happened. Or... With respect to the uncertainty of dreams, something close to what really happened. The night Sintra fell. She lost her family and home that night, that's for sure, and nothing can ever replace it. But a new home? A new family? That can be found. Found family. Geralt has brought her to meet his. That's what the other witchers of the School of the Wolf are to him, especially his father figure, Vesemir, who asks, Who is this child, Wolf? Who is this girl? She's my... Geralt suddenly stammered. She felt his strong, hard hands on her shoulders. And suddenly, the fear disappeared, vanished without a trace. The roaring red fire gave out warmth, only warmth. The black silhouettes were the silhouettes of friends, carers. Their glistening eyes expressed curiosity, concern, and unease. Geralt's hands clenched over her shoulders. She's our destiny. And ours too, fellow readers. We're destined to read a lot more about Siri, and it's going to be amazing and a lot of fun. So yeah, we've hopefully everyone, everybody enjoyed this chapter as much as us. Mikal has quite a nice section about meta. We're all going to talk about that. There's quite a bit of meta in this. And uh, yeah, let's go into some personal, personal reactions here. For me, what I really loved about this was that there was a little bit of everything. We get the, the, the great conversation around the tree and when everybody's talking about their different perceptions of beauty and religion and love and also some disagreements. We find some racism there, of course, which we've talked about previously, obviously. The distinction between races and war and all of these different things are going on. And then we have a little bit of Geralt and Ciri. We get a little of their relationship blossoming. And we also get some pretty scary stuff with Rianne and Yennefer and all that. So... 
It didn't feel like a super long chapter to me, even though it is a longer chapter, because I felt like each one was contained. There wasn't like a ton of ton of stuff going on, but I really, really enjoyed the kind of playfulness, especially under Bleo Barris and everybody talking about how they needed to give their their respect to Dandelion for how good of a, a ballad teller he is, even though he was getting himself in trouble <laughs> for that very reason. <laughs> <laughs> well said. I really liked it. I think... This is definitely when when you're reading it, not for the first time, you, you recognize how clever it is and how much is really in here. It can feel, I think, a little random because we go from a ah, series of flashbacks to this random and long conversation under a tree that is, as I'll get into, like extremely meta. And then we've got some action with Dandelion, but not really an action character for some reason, and a pair that we haven't really seen interact very much with Yennefer. And then we go back to Ciri. So I, I, it can feel a little bit piecemeal, but I think, and we'll go through it, it's it's a really interesting way to start the the novels as a whole, and like a very a very smart and Sapkowski kind of way. And when I say very Sapkowski, it means he does whatever the hell he wants (laughs) and does not pay attention to any rules that people might feel like he should hold to. We get separate locations, we get kind of separate situations, but all of these situations are connected because people are talking about similar things. You know, obviously, Geralt and Ciri are trying to get to care more, and then we get Dandelion singing about the bell, and then Rienz is looking for information. So they're all really connected, all of these uh, different scenes. It's bold to start this book the way he did. The dream intro is, is I wouldn't say that's, that's not a stretch. That's kind of normal-ish as far as these things go. Having some, something horrible happen, a city burning, is, that's, not a, that's not a bold choice itself. But the Leobera scene very much is. It's very, it's very quirky and unusual, but it, it's also serious. It's silly at the same time. Something I, we've, we've said multiple times, it's a hallmark of The Witcher. But for me, you know, it's interesting, Ryan and Chad says, I couldn't imagine reading this chapter without reading the first two short story books. That was my experience. I think I maybe have mentioned it before. It's definitely the time to mention it again, if so, even either way. I started with this book because I didn't, I got mixed up on where it actually started. So I thought this was the first thing. So I read this, I read the first two chapters and before I was like, oh wait, I'm supposed to have read (laughs) these short story books first. So I went back and did that, but I was already really into it because of the quirky, but intelligent and well-written first two chapters. I thought that narrative style was, was really neat and fun and coming from so much work on A Song of Ice and Fire, having a, a narrator that just just having a narrator be a big part of it is different from Song of Ice and Fire at all, let alone a narrator with strong opinions and a sense of humor, right? It isn't just telling you what's happening. They're weighing in on adding additional context. Like, oh, it's, it's a really unusual and fun narrative style. And it sucked me in right away. Yeah, it's, it's definitely got a little bit of everything, but I, I, I do agree in the sense that if you didn't read the first two short stories, you're missing out a little bit on how Geralt and Ciri met and Dandelion's relationship with Geralt and how, why they're separated and why Yennefer and Geralt aren't together. So I think if you are t- tuning in for the first time, my guess is that most of you are not. Check out the first two books before you read one of them. That's really interesting because it lays out the purpose of of the the Blueberries section. It's, it, it's like a, a recap of who these people are and what their relationships are and why we should care about them. That is such a 
a strange and I think bold is a really good way to put it, Z's path to take to that because it's not usually you won't usually have a book that are like all the Harry Potter books have that one boring chapter at the beginning where it's like and this is what happened in the last five books and, whatever. <laughs> and it's okay we get it we know but this is just what if the characters just talked about it we had a bunch of random people discussing it like it was books that you should have read yourself and like you see what they know and what what the perceptions are it's really fascinating yeah. I also like that it grounds us sorry just to start in, in series going. point of view because I think the when it starts in series point of view that's a message to us i think that this is it is series story like Geralt is obviously super important major character 1b but it is ultimately the arc of cirilla of Sintra and how she becomes who she becomes yeah that's the one he's she's, he's not supposed to talk about that's who everyone's after that's the one yeah you're right it does frame that pretty well like Geralt is is only oh i can't believe they killed him that's really the most of the extent. Obviously, Rianz wants to know where he is, too, but only in so much as she, he knows he's with Siri. <laughs> so if it wasn't for Siri, he wouldn't care about where Geralt was at all. <laughs> so It's really funny, though. You hear you hear the bickering. Oh, oh, Geralt can't be killed. He's the fastest witcher I've ever seen. They're just like talking about his different skills and whatnot. But it's so interesting because when they're when they're having these conversations as the reader, you're like, oh, I know what happened. But everybody's giving like the game of telephone when someone tells a story and then the story changes by the seventh person's it's all different information it's funny you're getting all this different information because people were like oh no she died at Sintra oh no Gerald died at Trans River like all of these different things so it's really funny to hear that and obviously there are some funny moments but they're all they're all connected to this story and they're 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 really entranced by the ballad they they recognize uh, Dandelion's greatness I should say <laughs> To add on to what McCall said, it, the the have to start with dialogue, just a discussion, is definitely a big part of the boldness of it all. And the reason I'd say it's bold to also add on to that in a different way is the reason it works is because he writes it really well. I mean, that's that's why you can get away with it if you write well. So from my perspective as a reader, I immediately loved it. So I'm like, well, that bold choice absolutely scored when it comes to me, when it comes to both of y'all, when it comes to probably anyone listening. But it's also fun to acknowledge that. And, and maybe if y'all could, when you're thinking about this, if this isn't your first read through, which I think a lot of y'all probably have already read it. Or if you can think back to how your initial reaction was, that would be fun, a fun thing to do in this moment while we're, while we're all we're talking about it. The world feels really developed. Like he drops us in and people were having conversations. It feels really deep. You know what I mean? So we're going to discover so much. Yeah, obviously, we don't know much about Rience at this point. We just know he's a mysterious figure that's looking for Siri, and then and he doesn't mean well, obviously, by the way he speaks and the people that he surrounds himself with and whatnot. But it's just a really interesting, even though the, you know, there are those funny meta jokes, he is still really putting us in the world because it, it is this fantastical story where we're hearing about all of these kind of epic adventures that people have had on the continent. Yeah, everything's well, really I mean, well presented. It's almost like a fire hose. There's all the major characters are mentioned, Nilfgaard and Riance and, and the Emperor and Vilgeforts and the Sorcerers and Dwarves and Elves and Druids. And a lot Dijkstra. of those people are there. Yeah, Dijkstra. Yeah, you're right. He's mentioned too. And Philippa's mentioned. And a whole bunch of kings, six or seven kings get mentioned here and there by either Sheldon Skaggs or... All the Redanian kings. Yeah, yeah. there's just <laughs> even... And historical kings too. So 
it's it's there's a it, there's a ton of information in there. It's almost it's almost like exposition, but it's not. It's framed it really cleverly. So it's kind of like he figured out a way to to give us a lot of information that you don't have to remember it all. In fact, you don't have to remember any of it. You can forget every single name he mentioned. But if you're coming back on Reread, you're like, oh, hey, that's Rayla right there. <laughs> oh, that's Black Rayla. Cool. And you get fun. You get to remember these fun characters and these dots get connected. And you're like, oh, yeah, Sheldon Skaggs. We're going to see him again, too. That's cool. I didn't realize that he was... 500 years old though that's he says he saw he was there when the first human ships arrived like he says he remembers that wait now we now you don't know what that means the first time you read it but i don't know he, he's also the same guy who was like is anyone here who didn't fight it sudden <laughs> yeah so i'm like right. maybe he stretches the truth a little bit and that's well he, he said there was a hundred thousand soldiers right yeah. i mean we we don't know the exact number of soldiers but that's a lot and thirty thousand people died like we know a lot of people died but that is huge numbers yeah. right is it ironic I, I if think, dwarves tell tall tales hey oh. i think part of what this accomplishes also is like it's a very contradictory sense of order and chaos because obviously this is an extremely striated world and like the the point of the tree is that everybody comes together despite their differences and their ranks and whatever and Sapkowski is very clear that it's not as unifying as it seems but it I, I think I mean I'm not by any means an expert in like medieval life or whatever but that that idea of like things being extremely changeable and there, and there being many you have so many different levels of nobility and kings and and whatever and so many different factions and people who are trying to to get their own way not that life is that different now but it i, I feel like it, it really fosters that sense of things in that world being supposed to be very ordered but also extremely difficult to navigate and chaotic and just well, you, yeah well, you hear them say they all have a certain amount of respect for this Bioberison being there. They talk about Mother Nature and the importance of respecting Mother Nature. But then we obviously see differences. There's some bickering. There's some racism. Like, hey, like, that's not cool that you said that. There's obviously we, we start to see that expand. And that's part of what really, really, like, after I read the first two books for the first time and I read this book, it really pulled me in because there was, I was like, whoa, there's some big stuff going on on the continent, right? Like... This, if this is happening under a little tree, what can we imagine is happening in bigger cities and stuff like that? And obviously, they, they give us a little... We, we heard about Nilfgaard, but we talk, we, we get the real picture that Nilfgaard is steamrolling places. That's like giving us some context into, okay, Nilfgaard is the big dog and is going to be one of the big dogs in the fight going forward. <laughs> yep, I would agree. It's a great intro. I think it stands out really well. From other intros, also, from other series yeah. that I've read, it just it really does things differently in so many ways that I I'm very I'm just very fond of it. <laughs> a lot of it feels Aziz very Miller. modern, don't you think? Like the way these arguments play yeah. out. Like there's the the overly peaceful guy, the elf argues that no matter what, peace is best, and the dwarf who's like, are you kidding? Like we people fight so that you can have peace. You got to have that. You got to fight for peace in the first place, and the druid who's like we have to return to nature and the priest who's like, we have to pray harder and then Elfgard was sent to punish us and uh, these are all relatable <laughs> right you we see all and then and the things like racism and these are all relatable to to the real world anyway when he said the thoughts and prayer stuff i was like yeah <laughs> i'm not really down for that <laughs> Children 
of elves, dwarves, halflings, gnomes, half-elves, quarter-elves, and toddlers of mysterious provenance neither knew nor recognised the racial or social divisions. At least, not yet. Yeah, pretty clear weighing in on how that's learned behaviour, most of it. And that's pretty poignant. And it's a good example of what I mean when I say it's a bold way to start a book, but it works if you do it well. And this is that's just a really well-written chapter. Even if you like don't agree, which I, I'm not sure why you would, but whatever. It, it's, it's still just a very poignant two sentences with that. The add-on of at least not yet says so much. And this is a fantasy world, so the differences are they're not like really notable unlike the real world right where the differences are just sub superficial and this is where actual different races and it's still people are still able to live together and work together and, and get along so usually you don't see someone start off with that <laughs> yeah well it's also really interesting i'm getting a little into some of my like long meta rant but it's good because we should break that up somehow um <laughs> yeah like uh, there, there's a line where Dandelion says that like he can't talk about like the real people behind his 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 work or like the real like the message is 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 self-contained like he's not lecturing he's not telling you specifically like this is about Geralt and whatever like, if it was about this particular Miller's wife it would just be slander it wouldn't be a, yeah. a poem <laughs> and I I find that really ironic given that. Sokowski really immediately digs his hands right into not even really metaphor, like basically just message through the world that he's set up. And like, he's extremely unshy about that. And I, I find that like, really interesting that he plays with that, I guess, demand that sometimes made of artists that their message has to be subtle and and under the surface. And he is right off the bat giving giving us what he thinks and will continue to give us what he thinks. I think I wonder like from a meta perspective, not to I don't and I don't mean this to take credit away from him, certainly not, but the fact that I don't think he was trying to do this for a living at first. He just realized it was working. He started off writing a short story and was like, "Hey, I'm good at this." But he he never he didn't set out to be a writer for a career, as as a career right away it just would be it evolved he's like whoa i can do this for a career he didn't in his 20s set out to be an author obviously it came much later in life so you wonder if that's part of that he was able to say what he wanted because he's like, i'm not beholden to like i don't care i don't i can say what i want here i'm not like trying to get i'm not trying to pander to anyone <laughs> if people don't like it that's fine i'm not worried about whether they give me their dollars or not so it's nice to have and that just goes to show that when you don't have to, when your next meal isn't on the line, your message can be, even that is a privilege of, of sorts, being able to say what you want in your stories. And he's really good at it. I'm so glad we're doing this. <laughs> oh, You're really just happy. reminding me of when Reince is like, I would like to support the arts and the artist. <laughs> like, maybe do, but not like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll also just cut your hands off if you want. <laughs> the, yeah, that's the yeah, alternative. Yeah. <laughs> it is so interesting, right? Because there's some double speak there. We have the the whole D dandelion is doing his ballads and he's writing about his great fan Geralt, and uh, he's also a spy. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's, that was that was surprising. We didn't know that from the short stories, did we? Or did we? I've I've lost no. track of when we first learned that. I think that was. 
didn't even pick up on it the first like twi- two times I read it, and then finally Yennefer was like, "Greetings from Deekstra." I was like, "Deekstra's a spy." Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, what I missed until this time, and the other interesting thing about this time is that it's the f- first time I've read the books after having seen the show, which the show is different than the books in in a lot of ways, obviously, but it does the scenes that it does do similarly, it causes you to look at them a little differently. Maybe you're imagining them differently because you you have a visual image for some of them that causes me to sometimes think about them differently. And also the show had this similar angle of Dijkstra being behind what Dandelion was doing. And so what I had missed until this time was that Dandelion at first thought Rians when he approached him was an agent of Dijkstra. And he's like, I was expecting you to introduce yourself as a mutual friend. But when you didn't do that, who the hell are you? So I was like, oh, he's... He, then, And then Yennefer shows up and is... He does have a message from Dijkstra, which is surprising to him because he was expecting someone he didn't already know. <laughs> Even though Sapkowski writes Dandelion as aloof, he's this really intelligent person, obviously. He knows a lot about the world. Obviously, he's writing these epic ballads and about the continent and different characters and whatnot. Once he realized that Rance was asking too many questions, he's like, okay, this guy... <laughs> He would already he like he wouldn't have to ask this many questions if you if I was working with him and he's like okay well, I'm not going to answer any more of your questions I realize I'm in big trouble here he knew where that was going he was like okay oh, yeah. this is this guy just wants to find Siri and is not doesn't want that information for good reasons and he keeps on <laughs> he, he keeps on looking to what's it she's holding I can't remember the statuette of like water overflowing or something he keeps on looking at that when he's got the secret door in the corner he keeps on looking over there he's like, oh man I gotta get out of here and then you know, <laughs> realize there's a little secret hatch he has to go to here like why does he keep looking over there is it like because it's a woman like the figure of a woman because you know obviously dandelion's a bit of an adulterer uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that scene is funny You're like oh okay there was actually a secret path there. <laughs> yeah. Ryan mentioned that he enjoys that Dandelion is actually a very talented bard, and I, I agree. I think there's a lot of fun and silliness that, that goes along with his talents, but it is really interesting to start the series on a note that he's not just talented, he's influential, and he actually is quite famous, and the the point of storytelling of the storytelling that he does is going to impact the story in turn eventually. And he is, as I tried to put in the synopsis or impart in the synopsis, he is a unifying figure. He's the one thing that like gets them all to stop and pay attention and be like enraptured together. And then as soon as it's over, they're all telling how much they liked it. But while the arguments and bickering are progressing and returning, they're still praising him, but the arguments are happening. It's praise, argument, praise, argument. As it slowly goes back to normal, and then they realize he's gone. <laughs> it's so interesting. It's, yeah. is the Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> the, the it's so interesting how that's all. presented, too, is he's right, because we got like all sorts of different people from different walks of life. We have like poor people, and then we have people who consider themselves to be more royal, who are telling Dandelion to be more confident, like to up his... Like, Dandelion already yeah. thinks of himself as someone of status right like he's this very fine boy and character well like we have people coming up to him and being like yes man you you are you are the ballad guy (laughs) yeah dandelion doesn't necessarily need his ego stroke too much but they're doing it anyway yeah he's a rock star (laughs) he's a rock star it's balanced nicely i think with the suggestion later that he he has occasionally stolen lyrics and tunes from (laughs) 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 
Yeah, there's certain tricks of the trade that would work in that era that wouldn't work in ours. <laughs> it's, it's also funny because they talk of him like as this like super like this respectable person, you know what I mean? Then he just like runs and takes off their money, and they're like, "Oh, <laughs> he just left." <laughs> yeah. I noticed. I'm not sure about this, but I think I might have found where Yennefer's hiding among the people of the tree. Really? Because it says oh, and she she says she was there, and she he didn't see her, and she didn't want to be seen. So after the wizards, it talks about. A tight-knit, dark, and silent group of peasants lurked in the background, resembling a forest with their rakes, pitchforks, and flails poking above their heads. They were ignored by all and sundry. So, oh. I yeah, I, I she was in no there. no proof that she's there, but she might have that might have been where she was. Hiding. She would know that that's the most the people that get the most ignored and most overlooked. So. That's yeah, exactly. making it the best place to hide. She's what is she again? Like a hundred years old? Yeah, she's gonna know things like that. <laughs> she's been. It's not her first rodeo, <laughs> and she's gonna know where Dan Dillion is. <laughs> Dan Dillion, yeah, I know, isn't that anyone who's listening to the audio book? That is, you, you know what Kyle's saying there. It is Dan Dillion. Dan Dillion. <laughs> Amanda pointed that out in the chat, and I had to, I had to point that out because I was re. I listened. I think I listened to the audiobook three times before we read this episode. So <laughs> nice. Peter Kenny is absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> it really is, yes. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> the chapter's divided into three parts, really, which one of which is cut in half. So we, we start and end with Siri and Geralt, and in between we have the two other scenes, each which flows into the next nicely. So we have the conversation around the tree that flows into the inn and the rescue, and they talk about Siri and Geralt, which then flows into actual Siri and Geralt arriving at Kaer Morin and meeting Eskol and Vesemir and setting up the next chapter. So it's pretty cool structure, pretty fun to look at that way if you didn't notice it when you're reading it, which is understandable because, I don't know, most people don't just think about how all the chapters are laid out as they're reading them the first time or whatever. So <laughs> it's usually not something people notice. So I like to see that, that little, little little space to show you where the next part is. And usually you yeah. might have a name at the top of the page or something. Yeah. <laughs> so the other kind of established structure that starts happening here is these little lore bits that happen. They're technically at the end of each chapter, but they're really about the next chapter in terms of what the content refers to. Except for this first chapter, which has the Ithlene's prophecy right at the beginning. If you've already read the series, you're familiar with it by now. If not, of course, it gets talked about already in the first chapter. The ra the ravings of a crazy elf is what Skeldon Skaggs calls it. But obviously, it's very important to the story. It's going to come back up, and we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about it in different contexts throughout this uh, entire series. That one's series. not going to leave us alone. Especially since the <laughs> series it's not having leave anyone alone. Especially since Siri's having a crazy dream to start off the first chapter, right? Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, that, <laughs> not the first dream she'll have either, yeah. The opening quote, it's, yeah, the, the influence it has within the story, right, McCall? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I mean, this is not unique to Sapkowski, but, but using in-world texts, which he is pretty much like a master at creating, is a, is a really great technique that I, I'm a nerd for. And the thing I love about this is that it, it's immediately and consistently relevant. Like, all the characters are aware of it. It's something that the actions that people take because of Athlete's prophecy continue to affect, like, what people do in the story. And that affects Siri and Geralt and Yennefer and Dandelion and everybody we, we come to meet. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's good. I like it. 
we definitely see the more religious factions believe in it a little bit more, obviously. But I think that there's a sort of realization that big things are happening on the continent, obviously, with Nilfgaard encroaching and someone calling himself the White Flame is weird if you think about it. I I don't know. If I saw someone calling himself the White Flame, I might think they're crazy. Gaudy for a title. Like, who, who, who gave you that one? You call yourself that? I mean, man, what a... I mean, <laughs> what a power this, move. <laughs> this song apocalyptic when Nilfgaard is literally burning towns and cities and steamrolling places. So, yeah, I is, like how uh, that's made pretty clear right away, yeah. too. Like the veteran Sheldon, who's Sheldon Skaggs, who's seen it all, is like, they're going to come back and they're more prepared than we are, even though we beat them. That the way they have their business together is very threatening. And it's, again, presented in a very relatable way. He's, look, they're united in purpose. He doesn't describe what type of weapons they have, how good their leaders are. We don't need to know that. I mean, we do know that, and we do know all those things are high quality. But if you happen to be a first-time reader, or if you're not super familiar with it all, you can say, okay, this guy who knows what he's talking about is pointing to a concept that's relatable, which is they're unified in their purpose, and united under an authoritarian, which is something yeah. that happens in the real world. We all know how dangerous that is. A fantasy world, but very relatable. And that's a part of what makes the, when we say it's well-written, that's an example of that right there, I think. He may be um, jumping up the numbers, obviously. There may not be 30,000 people who died at the Battle of Sodom, but he talks about the, the 12 mages who died, and that's a pretty big deal. 12 mages dying yeah. in a battle? Like, that's a pretty big deal. And we, we obviously know how powerful Yennefer is, and they're still... They say, oh, we, you know, the, the name of Yennefer isn't on there yet, but that's still a pretty big deal. Yeah. 30,000 people. Wait, wait, no, it's 13 mages. Yeah, yeah 13 mages. Yeah, 13 <laughs> <Right>. mages. <laughs> what's, and what's neat is that that gets mentioned as well, and we have representatives of that, and... Those characters' names pop up a few times because they are enshrined as legends because they're heroic figures. And that reverberates through the next few years throughout the continent. And the books take place the next few years on the continent. So (laughs) that's a place where this happens. We got an excellent comment here from Guy. In the books, people say Nilfgaard is a parallel for the Roman Empire in terms of their military military and political structure. The show, maybe not so much. What do you guys think? Well, Guy, I'm not sure if you heard our Nilfgaard episode, if you guys haven't checked it out yet, but we talk about that. We talk a little bit about the Roman Empire in that one, too, and Aziz definitely goes off and really, really lets us know where kind of some of the influences from the Nilfgaardian yeah, Empire. Yeah, I was pointing at Aziz. I was like... I I agree with the point that it's not so so much true with the show. The show they're more like fanatics. It's it's a little more the zealous the zealotry angles brought out more. So it's maybe more they're more like I don't know. It's not as relatable (laughs) to something in the real world that I could point to. Maybe there are there probably are some decent examples. I just it's it's not certainly not Rome though. Yeah. Uh, Does it feel like a little bit of the Zoroastrianism that we hear with the the Red Priest of Relore? I don't want to use a ton of Song of Ice and Fire references, but the fanaticism aspect of it, their belief in the white flame, this kind of, you know, he's made himself into this godlike chosen type emperor, this person who is going to fulfill this prophecy. Well, in some ways, I guess, yes and no, actually. Zoroastrianism isn't isn't really associated with fanaticism. That part is the, the relore aspect of yeah. that from Game of Thrones is, is just trumped up to make it more fantasy and fun. Yeah. But their Zoroastrianism does have this duality of there's a good and an evil and the humanity needs to help the good triumph over evil. But 
they believe that is inevitable that he good will win over evil in, in eventually which that's not exactly what the white the white the white flame prophecy more is that evil's going to win it's like yeah no the why this world will be enveloped in frost and you yeah. know that's that's what's going to happen <laughs> so it is it does have that duality to it but it's kind of it's 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 its own thing it's more intense. like, like it's a mishmash <laughs> of different real and fantasy religions i guess the show mm. version anyway <laughs> But uh, it's also just not that fully explained in the show. In the books, we get a little more – there's a little Mm -hmm. more nuance and backdrop to it. Yeah, I I think in the books, you also can't ignore the connections to Imperial Russia and Communist Russia that I think Sapkowski is alluding to. I I don't mean to be strictly biased by the fact that he is a man who grew up right after World War II in Poland, but I don't think you can ignore that. And I I think that the idea of uh, – tyrannical force coming in and swallowing up all the other countries around it, I think definitely points to that at times. And, and that'll be something that that's interesting to look to through the series. It's really interesting yeah. because we are that's actually it. seeing that now with Imperialist Russia trying to swallow Ukraine and other countries in Europe. So that's why the series is... Don't you really... love it when fantasy is relevant <laughs> to the current times? <laughs> And then not, not when bad things happen to other people, but yeah, I know what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, we, we don't get the dragons, we just get the imperialism. Yeah, that's not as fun. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you have what Nilfgaard has, which is you have manpower, your cheap manpower that the tyrants, the authoritarians at the top are willing to throw away. That's one thing that these all have in common, that do, that does make it not parallel to Rome. In, in, in Rome, they didn't just throw their soldiers away. They were pretty... That, that was a very resource they protected. But say another comparison we make in our Nilfgaard episode is Star Wars, where the Empire yeah. was very willing to throw stormtroopers away. They're just like, yep, kept, keep throwing more and more of these guys at the problem until it goes away. They weren't really concerned with saving lives so much as they were getting their objective. It's like a recurring theme in Star Wars that, the, for example, TIE fighters don't have force fields and X-Wings do because the, <laughs> the rebellion actually cares about protecting their pilots and the Empire is expending resources to win rather than The uh, goal is what matters, not, yeah. not the people. And that that immediately is a is an, an overwhelming factor to show you who's the good guys, who the bad guys are. Like, there's a lot of gray in the Witcher series, but the, the Nilfgaard, as it currently is, is not particularly gray. And that's part of why they like dress in all black and have all these obvious comparisons to Nazis and Imperial Russia and the Empire of Star Wars, which is also in turn modeled off of the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I mean, when when we talk about Nazis, we won't get too much into it, into it. But when we look at that type of fascism, it's the there's always some type of religious dogma and it's always based off that. And we're seeing some of that now, unfortunately in our day and age, but uh, that allows them to expand lives, right? That's one of the 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 justifications they use for, for death. And and it's like, it's some sort of greater good, like a twisted greater good argument. Yeah. Amir definitely believes what he's doing is right. We'll just say that. (laughs) Yeah. He, he thinks he's saving the world on some level uh, pretty sincerely, which is part of what makes it interesting. (laughs) But we all, but we all agree here in the podcast surprise. He's a shit dad. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just bad. Just, just bad. It was father's day recently. Um, Geralt, Geralt's our daddy. So. That actually segues well into what Siri, into Siri's kind of dream flashback, and that opens up the chapter because this is a thread we'll continue to follow through the story. But her interactions with the Black Knight are fundamental to a lot of her experiences going forward and her fears and her actions. There's a line that like only stuck out to me that you know because I, I I've read 
the books, I know some stuff about who is who in these <laughs> scenarios and what they want and what they're doing. But she says to Geralt, what did he do to me? I don't remember what he did to me. All right. And that's like the thing that scares her most almost like of like multiple soldiers dying on top of her being thrown off of horses, hearing people scream. Like there's a great line, like what must one do to a man to make him scream that way of, of all of that. Her question is, what did he do to me? And that can lead you into some really horrifying and dark potential places that, again, I, I think something Sapkowski does so well is he he takes these movements of nations and these very grand ideas and he makes them extremely personal while also talking about them in, in, in the meta scale so yeah i don't know just want to just wanted to point out that particular that line. is a really yeah that is a really intriguing moment and it's it's a important one to acknowledge on reread because yeah it's easy to miss the first time through obviously we're not going to spoil stuff we're going to take it as it comes we're just going to set things up when we know they're coming without saying what they are but yeah well th- we do get resolution on this we do at least see what happens so that's nice we know that's coming that's one thing I do it'll be a little while before we get there though <laughs> one thing i do think that is pretty interesting that was mentioned that i think that could apply to season three a little bit more for the show is the the whole horses looking like specters and we get the wild hunt so that could be maybe something that they took a little bit more from her vision for the show that might be a little bit exciting i don't Drink, know if you... guys we got a wild hunt reference <laughs> <laughs> there's the That's wild hunt but rian's is the mild hunt <laughs> 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 or the child hunt. Yeah, yeah, it's the child hunt. There, it's all the child hunt. <laughs> yeah, it <really> is. <laughs> I just want to go into the meta a little more because cool. I really think that this is Sapkowski teaching us how to read his books, we do become absorbed in and enjoy and feel really strongly about the stories that he's going to tell us, much like the group around the tree. But it's really, I think, essential that you keep an eye on the meta narrative, because this is fundamentally, I think, a story about stories and the way they impact us and why we tell them what they do, how they change, how they last, and how they change us. That is one of the most prominent themes, I think, to me in in the story. I think Lady of the Lake, the final book, is impossible to read if you or enjoy if you can't vibe with it on a meta level. Obviously, we'll, it's a little bit before we get there, but I think this is a, a good setup for that. Yeah, and I, I think that parts of these books that I are in, intense and fascinating and amazing and, and super interesting, and then there are parts that drag a little bit. But I think that looking at it through that meta lens can help with a lot of that. It can really grease the wheels and illuminate the point of a lot of those those. Like, so when we get to a certain lodge and certain witches are sitting and talking about genetics for a really long time, that's, <laughs> that's kind of part of why that's there and, and what's happening. I agree with Mikel on, on the fantastical element. Like he goes through the first two books and we hear about all these kind of fairy tales and obviously Lady of the Lake. There's definitely a huge aspect of that. And I think Blood of Elves, there's a little bit less of that, but Sapkowski plants these things in your head. And we hear about it a little bit here in the first chapter. He's planting those ideas again, letting us know that this story has a lot of influence from fairy tales, of course. I mean, look, look at all of the influence that we got from all of the short stories. So Mikel is definitely hitting the nail on the head in the sense that he's just reminding us like, hey, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, this is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's really well done. Yeah, that was really well said, McCall. And to maybe add just a little bit, there's we talk about it a lot in the short stories how 
he likes to play with storytelling, how like methods of storytelling and presentation, but he doesn't have the freedom to do it in a short story like he does in an epic because he can has time to shift and stay within one mode before he shifts into another one. Whereas in a short story, it's all 60 pages or whatever. There's only so much time you have to shift and have it even be noticed or to present things from a different perspective There's a, when there's a smaller cast of characters and you're not shifting locations and things like that. In this epic of five books, yeah. we get to look at things from different times and we have these little epigraphs and we have campfire versions and people telling each other stories and the narrator presenting things. There's just you can't I couldn't possibly name all the ways that he tells the story within the story. And I love that he starts with people having just heard a story. <laughs> and that's where we start. So it's it's nice and smooth. <laughs> yeah. There's also, it's worth noting, some hilarious meta about people who engage in art to artists, the section where everybody's, okay, but how did it end? Like, what <laughs> yeah. happens next? Like, George R. R. Martin, what happens next? <laughs> and it's, I just feel like a lot of, I, I honestly don't know how famous or how much fan attention Sapkowski was getting when he wrote this, but it reads to me like an author who was like, I will call you all out, basically by name, if I have to. (laughs) 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 Songs and ballads never end, dear lady, because poetry is eternal and immortal. It knows no beginning, no end. (laughs) People are like, cool, but what happens next? I wonder um, if he was actually, like covering his own ass when he wrote that. He's like, just in case I have little problems, I'm just going to throw this in here. Just <laughs> Which kind of happens. The end of the Witcher series is amazing, I think, and baffling and curious and strange. But like uh, this actually ties into that really, really beautifully if, if, if you've read all the way through. It's also hard to imagine, like, like you say, though, uh, or at least you're alluding to here, uh, he, he probably didn't plan it like that exactly he may have had some idea but i i'm skeptical that he was like and then i'm gonna do this oh <laughs> With, yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> i think he just again he he made some bold choices and, and relied on his skill to get him through that and it were and it worked yeah <laughs> there's one line where dandelion's like oh no i meant for you to feel unfulfilled and, and confused at the end and it's, <laughs> it's just such an author thing to say it's yes you're unhappy Thank you. I He's like, he told us right at the like, beginning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, we should have read the fine print. It was there. <laughs> and then Sepkowski couldn't help himself and put out Season of Storms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Which you wonder great. if he'll do any more. You wonder if he'll throw another one out there and if he just, maybe he'll, who knows? You never know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> which are certainly making the big books. He could maybe okay. get a little bit excited. I mean, they are creating the Witcherverse out there. So who knows? Yeah. Maybe he'll revisit it. Maybe he just has a good idea and wants to write it. Who knows? He talks about the dandelions clever with noticing the difference in how things are worded. That that reminded me of the scene in, if you all have seen in Glorious Bastards, where the guy holds up three fingers to for three drinks and he's undercover. He's a British guy and he's masquerading as a Nazi. And the Nazis realize that that, that outs him holding up three fingers because he holds them up as three three middle fingers rather than so holding like up a this, thumb. Right? A German-born person yeah. would have held up yeah, a thumb the and the first two do fingers. This. Germans do this. So yeah, it's a similar kind of concept where just a little 
subtle difference in language or phrasing, or in that case, a hand gesture, gives the whole game away. And because there's no, apparently there's no accent. I mean, if he doesn't have a Nilfgaardian accent, or if he does, if, if there is such a thing as a Nilfgaardian accent, he did hide that. So this was the leak in his disguise. I think that he was trying to hide where he's from. But that was the leak, and, and Dandelion gets credit for it. And it makes sense, because he's a poet. He would notice the specific phrasing. Yeah. A guy who's known for lyrics and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, their conversation was so interesting, right? Because Dandelion is trying to really... You know, he, he, for at first, he thinks he's working with him, and then he realizes there's something wrong, so he's trying not to give any information. And then the guy, just he's, he just realized how screwed he is. He's like, there's nothing he can do, right? <laughs> yeah. What would you guys do in that situation? I, I've thought about myself. I, I've thought about it myself. I'm like, how could have Dandelion handled it any differently, really, honestly? Yeah. There, he, he knew the thing about Dandelion is he's afraid of when he can run, He's he will, and he's afraid. But he, we've seen him back into a corner before, and he knows he's just worldly enough to know that there's there's no way out of this. The guy's going to kill him anyway, whether he talks or not. That's he's smart enough to know that. So he's like, I may as well not make it easy on him. And we've seen him tied up before by the elves. So this is set up by being captured by Phil of Andrel and all that. It's like that cornered rat concept where a rat will run and run and run. But when it gets when you when it has nowhere to run, it will fight back. <laughs> it can be, it'll use what little it has. <laughs> and again, Dandelion's kind of like that. <laughs> you, know, you know what I find interesting about this, too? And I want you guys to kind of chime in on this is that obviously Yennefer scolds Dandelion a little bit like, hey, you got to be more careful about talking about Siri. You know what I mean? But Dandelion does try really hard. He does realize that if he's, he's trying not to talk about Geralt and Siri until he realizes he doesn't have a choice anymore. And I, I, I love that aspect of that. You could tell that Dandelion still really cares. You know what I mean? Like he still really values Geralt as a friend and he knows. It's one of the few times we see yeah. him be humble, right? It's neat to yeah. see him humble. When he talks about Geralt, his... It's one of the few times he's not haughty because he's always like one of the recurring like phrase associated with him is putting on airs. He always like acts haughty or uses that as a defense mechanism or as a way to put people down. But you can tell not, he t- considers Geralt. Yeah. yeah, you can tell he considers Geralt the true friend, even though we've they've had their fair share of Taylor Swifty breakups. It's it's I think it's really important to see him like this because one of my frustrations in the in a lot of the short stories is that for the most part. He's a womanizing asshole and has some, a little bit more depth, but it doesn't often go like much more than like a fingernail. And I think starting off like this, presenting him as someone who like, yes, he's a womanizer. Yes, he didn't want anybody paying attention to his apprentice over him. Mm -hmm. He stops playing or stops singing or whatever. But he's willing to be tortured for his friend and to, even though he, by his own admission, is not a very strong person he holds out for a really long time and I, I think that is a good yeah a really good place to start dandelion's journey because you're right like he is he's in many 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 ways a very frivolous character and a a comedic character um but he is also yeah deeply rooted in in the heart of the story and has has connections that go way way deeper than like the funny pockets. sidekick <laughs> The pockets of yeah. Rance, the amount of money that he <laughs> offered, because <laughs> that was a lot yeah, of money yeah, in the yeah. way it was described. It was like a yeah. ching, like dropping it on the table, like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> yeah, it was like described yeah, as more a... than what he had just earned. Yeah, I think is yeah. What, it was, what it said, something like that. Yeah, 
And that's a good parallel to him, like, just scarpering with the with the money that he got from the tree, which, I mean, to be fair, was his, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. He wanted to remove himself from that situation, but he wouldn't take dirty money from this guy. <laughs> yeah. So they have this sort of, it sort of ends with their conundrum on what to do. They both agree that Geralt needs to know, but how are they going to tell? There's no way Dandelion himself can go. Not only does he not know where it is, even if if it were to tell him, they, he's his cover is blown. He's yeah. compromised. You can't guarantee that no one will follow him. So that's just out of the question. So better just to keep keep him from knowing. It worked. It worked out better that way because he was almost tortured. Better that he not know. Better that he can't reveal it. If he's captured and tortured again, it's better that he can't say. He doesn't know where Karamoran is. It's, it would be the truth. If they're going to kill him yeah. anyway, he may as well not give up the info. He did reveal some information, but he, good thing he didn't know about Karamoran and Yennefer happened to be there in the nick of time. <laughs> he had his back. <laughs> and that, I mean, that also just like poses her as the, I think the way she's described in the and the way the people at the tree are talking about her is like the beautiful Yennefer with the love affair with Geralt and <laughs> mysterious witch and whatever. She's a straight badass, like yeah. right off the bat. And and even Sapkowski like tones down a lot of the like the look how gorgeous Yennefer is, which is like a, a big part of the way she's described. And it's important to her character, but like a big part of the way she's described in in the short stories. I think we get some like tumbling hair and violet eyes, but like not not extensive discussions of her figure and and <laughs> all the stuff. It's really about her magical prowess and her cleverness and her frankly cold bloodedness. Like <laughs> Dandelion's yeah. like, what you you killed both of them? <laughs> and she's like, yeah. Whoops, are... I didn't mean to kill that second one, but uh, <laughs> I like the way it ends, right? We get to see them have a bonding moment and, and talk about a c- kind of a core element, another setup moment here early on that uh, their friendships, their found family is very important and needs to be established and reminding reminding the reader of that. There is a lot of characters <laughs> <laughs> in this opening scene we mentioned that earlier that there's so many names were thrown around and it's fun to see that it's nice to be able to keep track of who's who but there's also a lot of characters that we just don't see again and it's also good to know that we don't have to think of them <laughs> oh, what you don't you don't like baron villabert yeah which, well <laughs> i love that we have baron villabert and daughters and then vera Lohenhaupt and sons <laughs> so there's both we've got that covered there and we don't, yeah, we don't see the Villabert, Baron Villabert again, but we do sort of see Vera Lohenhaupt and Sons again, sort of. We see someone from Illyria, which is interesting. Yeah, we see Black Rayla, of course. We get, we'll get we definitely see more of her. We got the, the guy, Donimir of Troy, the, the human that argues with Sheldon. We don't see him again, but what's interesting is there's a little bit of lore attached to him, which is his sigil, the Three Lions, which is the same sigil that... The first warlord of, of humanity carried when they landed their ships in, on the first landing. And it was also the sigil of Sintra. So they kind of had been adapted as part of a lot of human kingdoms, that the three lions. So it's a neat little, little mini world building detail there for you. There's a, the elves aren't any, there's none of those elves are named. N- neither are the priests or the druid. So there's just. These names are features, just, right? Yeah, that's that way. I think maybe just because there's already so many characters, he Sepkowski declined to give names to these characters. So it's like, all right, I'll give you all a little bit of a break here. <laughs> I don't know. I'll remember the beautiful elf with the ermine cap or whatever for 
forever. She's, <laughs> she's a standout. <laughs> I was wondering if she was someone, but I couldn't. I couldn't match her with anyone. There's nothing. Yeah, so, least, it's not like the, Francesca or anything. Francesca's got blonde yeah. hair, so. Yeah. yeah, the only thing I was thinking of is like the the illusion that Yennefer sends into the uh, yeah. into the thing also is wearing a tight cap. So I was like, mm. was she was she oh. posing as the as the elf? But I don't think so because she Dandelion says she didn't see her and she says she didn't want to be seen. But I mean, then maybe didn't recognize her, so maybe that's the same. I don't know. I believe the cap but, was described as being dark. If I'm not like a dark blue or something, I can't remember. I have to go back and read it again, but I don't think it was Yennefer, though. But it may, it may be funny that she was following them around. I mean, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like she was there for that whole conversation. It, it makes it more believable. It's one of the smart choices Sapkowski made in, in having Dandelion be a character is that you have a famous performer and then that enables it to be somewhat realistic when people find him. Like when Yennefer finds him or Geralt finds him because they've, they've found each other out in the world many times in the past in the short stories. And because he's a little bit famous or a lot famous, that there's a there'd be a buzz when a famous person's around and that that can help explain these encounters <laughs> and how Yennefer was on his trail in the first place. Oh, he's on tour. <laughs> We recognize Dandelion's fancy jacket, his fancy purple jacket. <laughs> ah, yeah. So there's almost every king is named that's currently in there. Some that we already have heard, like Full Test, and some that won't come up for a while, like Estrad, Thyssen, and then Nidamir, and Ervil, and Demavend, and Henselt, and the League of Hengfors, and all these names <laughs> that you'll hear again, but aren't super important to know now, but they're fun to connect the dots and set that up. Some of the mages get mentioned. Of course, we already mentioned Vilgefortz. Uh, the one knight tries to... We'll never forget the sorceresses who died. Coral, Triss, and <laughs> I forget the other one. <laughs> it's, it's Vaniel of Brugia, by the way. I did look that up. And, and Triss is course, alive, so it's like And Triss isn't actually dead, yes. It's all just like... <laughs> we also, we also uh, do get Eskel at yeah. turn one. And Vesemir, technically their first appearances, right? We've heard the name Vesemir before, of course, and of course on TV and everything, and Eskol's been on TV, but technically in the books, this is their first actual appearance. But more about them next chapter when there's like a lot of them, so yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The glade beneath Bloberus, the great oak, was a place of frequent rallies, a well-known traveller's resting place, and meeting ground for wanderers, and was famous for its tolerance and openness. The druids protecting the ancient tree called it the seat of friendship, and willingly welcomed all all comers. Is Bleoberus a character, technically? Because it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's a, it's a, got a name like a character, and if it's the biggest or oldest oak, you can. Does that mean the other oaks are its descendants? I mean, <laughs> is that is there some meta in there that we all well, descend talk- from? This is the Adam and Eve of oak trees. <laughs> well, we, we we get we get a little bit of the Ents vibe with the first acorn, kind of Lord of the Rings influence there. Just in case you didn't know, the root of the word druid. Ha, root. See what I did there? Is <laughs> The, the words oak and knower, like oak knower. So that's why druids are in part associated with oaks. Real world druids associated with oaks. So, yeah, no. There you go. Now you're an oak knower as well. <laughs> <laughs> 
I didn't think when we so I didn't think there was any herb lore in this one. Although I guess you could count that as a little bit of herb lore for oaks. There's a lot more behind oaks, but you know I think we've talked about them before anyway. So I don't need to go back to that. We'll just we'll just leave it there for now. I'll leave it leave it there for now. <laughs> this is so a corny, isn't it? Yeah. Chat chat Aziz is Aziz is like this behind the scenes. By the way, too. He yeah, has, I'm like this in real life. His, it's not his jokes, man. I swear. <laughs> so there is. Hyacinth, the Mama Lantieri, the the proprietor of the inn where Dandelion and Rianz have their encounter, is she smells of hyacinth. So that limits the symbolism because hyacinths have a bunch of different colors, and the color is what determines the type of symbol they are. There's a bunch of different versions of it, but all of them are spring, which which is renewal and new beginnings, which is what it's the beginning of the book. It's a new because that, that's very fitting. So I think that was probably intentional, as we often somewhat assume these things are. It could be coincidence. You never know. Search back through your memories to the past, to the days of Desmond, Radovid, and Sambuk, to the days of Abrad the Old Oak. You may not remember them because your lives are so very short, you're like mayflies, but I remember, and I'll tell you what it was like in these lands just after you climbed from your boats on the Uruga estuary and the Pontar Delta onto the beach. Three kingdoms sprang from the four ships which beached on those shores. Etc. 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 Yeah, he goes on and on, right? <laughs> he's he's got a lot to say. <laughs> Sheldon Skaggs does. So that was an important little slice of it. Sambuk and Desmod were the first human kings. Sambuk of Redania and Desmod of Temeria. They weren't the same kingdoms that they are now. The the particular regions that made up Redania and Temeria were different back then. We don't need to get into that right now. That might be a fun thing to cover separately in some sort of history episode, but. Radovid was also an early king. He's also associated with with these guys. But Abrad was his ancestor, was not really a king. He called himself a king, but isn't considered to have wielded the power of one, I guess. It's, It's unclear. But he has a cool name, Abrad the Old Oak. The point being in Old Oak, right? That's uh, relevant to having the same name as this tree. (laughs) So it goes to show it's like a meta statement on how we all, you go back far enough and we all come from the same sources. We all come from the same family tree or the same meta oak tree, however you want to phrase it, whatever metaphor suits you. So there's a lot of different ways that's expressed here. And, and, uh, but there's, there's a, a pretty good amount of Witcher history, Witcher verse history here that's being spoken there. And I love how those few lines can take you down a rabbit hole. And we'll have reason to come back to some of these characters because these these countries are obviously still around in terms of historical length of time. Like I said, the length of Sheldon Skaggs' purported age is roughly the length of a lot of these kingdoms. So he would be at least 500 years old if he's that old. And these, a lot of these kingdoms formed about 100 years later or in that century. So 400 years old, roughly, is how old Tamaria and Redania are. And that's not super old, right? These are still, that's older than like the United States. But in terms of like Europe and Asia and Africa, this, that's not that old <laughs> for the length of a country and interesting perspective to put on it all. After the books and during Witcher 3, we get the fifth Radovid. So <laughs> we yeah. get Radovid come again. There's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, this one was the Radovid the Great. So that's part of why the name stuck. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we want to be like him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Dandelion asks Yennefer if she can draw information from the two thugs, even though oh, they're yeah. dead. He's like, can't you still, even though they're dead, can't you still do that? And she's like, that magic is banned. And they probably don't know anything anyway. Which is true. They were, just, they were just thugs. They probably didn't know anything. They may have known something that they could use uh, like a, to track something down. Maybe Brown said something in their presence that he shouldn't have. But anyway, they're not going to go that route because she says it's banned and it's probably not worth it anyway. But that reminds me a little bit of what we saw at the beginning of season two. And that makes it a good segue is Taseya was looking, was like touching corpses and seeing their like last... 20 seconds and it was a really neat visual and it reminds me of that it's the same thing she's like reading their memories it's a necro cam or the dead cam, it's almost like what know. spock does right with like looking into people's memories yeah yeah except with dead people so yeah it was <laughs> yeah, cool. It was like... cool. yeah you're right though that's a good parallel or whatever so i thought that was neat and a good way to start this off so yeah there's uh, I, overall the the book to show is really like pretty s- straightforward here there's a lot of i mean like you said earlier kyle it's the the torture scene and Yennefer's rescue is really similar. He doesn't quite get as far in the torture in the show version, but whatever. That's a really minor dif- difference. And it's, like you said, he, she doesn't have her magic, but instead she uses alcohol and and a, like a torch or whatever, or his own flame. And it's a similar result. He gets a burned fire. His master helps him escape through a portal. Yeah. And they have a heart-to-heart afterwards, and there's Dykstra's behind it all and helping out and whatever. Yeah, the same elements are there. It's in an inn. I mean, yeah, it's all really similar. Ditto the fall of Sintra, right? That's pretty similar. Was, yeah. The show gives more detail because it has to, but it's not like doesn't take doesn't take any bold doesn't make any bold statements about what could have happened instead. It's, it's it all f- seems to fit the books, in, in my opinion. For those of you who have checked out our our show episodes, you will remember that we were all really enjoyed season two and we felt that the, the that it was well done and i felt like i wasn't disappointed or anything like yeah i would i mean obviously i want as much as i can from the books but obviously yennefer doesn't have her magic so i'm not going to be like upset that she's not shooting lightning bolts out of her hand like palpatine or some shit Amazing how star, <laughs> War- star wars has come up more than game of thrones this time it's amazing <laughs> <That's true. laughs> we do have variety so the Kara martin thing is similar too from the show like she has some bad dreams obviously they don't have the grain of truth thing doesn't happen on the way to care more and like it did in the show, but I thought that was a pretty clever way to fit that in. So we also get some rats, nice. Mikau. Yeah. The rats again, right? That's a, that's a little rat foreshadowing, right? <laughs> oh, so many references. <laughs> <laughs> Don't loiter in the dark or the rats will eat your boots. Eskel says, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Just yeah. rats, not They're just rats. Standing in for anything later. I think it's twice they're referenced in that one little blurb where it's not, it's very short, right? It's mostly about Vesemir and meeting them all and Eskel walking down the hall, but still he squeaks in the rats. I did it again. I didn't even mean to make that pun. Squeaks in two sets of rats. <laughs> this was, this was one thing that was mentioned on Reddit too, like the, some of the foreshadowing from Eskel and stuff in Blood of Elves that wasn't included in the show. And then obviously we had the whole differences with Eskel in the show, which we'll probably talk about later on but yeah (laughs) we'll just leave it at that
And of course, there's a lot more witchers in the show version yeah. than there are here, but that's also mostly just because they were going to get killed off. But we st- but we <laughs> it still ended get- kind yeah. of a similar state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we still get the... Which is kind of funny, though, because yeah. like, usually on, on... You remember like the tournaments on Game of Thrones where it was like, there were 10,000 people at the... There were 200 people at this <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> We, we did not have money for this crowd scene. <laughs> the, the, the one important thing is, is we do get the core witchers, though, that are... Cohen, Lambert, Eskel, and those ones are the, and Vesemir, of course. Those are the important ones. Yep. Yeah, I guess the other irony there is that all shows during the COVID era had to cut back on extra characters. Like mm, any yeah. crowd scenes were smaller. This isn't a crowd. I mean, these were these are witchers. They're not still an army or whatever. But still, there were a lot of shows that had like sparse crowds and sparse backgrounds. Like, why aren't there more? And it's like, oh yeah, that's why there aren't more. Understandable. Yeah. So funny moments. There's quite a few, huh? <laughs> yeah. The Witcher still has its. its we start off. One. I appreciate how well this first chapter establishes or reestablishes a lot of its familiar themes, and having the funny elements is a big part of that. It's an overarching feature of the series that that really in my mind puts it ahead of a lot of other series it's, it's serious man that's just you can't have he did he do that on purpose have a character named series so you're always saying series plural and it's like <laughs> series anyway like m- out of all of my favorite fantasy and sci-fi series that aren't s- intentionally like f- primarily comedic and I actually can't think of one that is primarily comedic this is the one that makes me laugh the most I think 100% and uh, yeah so I mean I'll say that since this is our first episode in the main the epic I'll say that now because we'll probably uh, frequently have a lot of examples of our funniest our favorite funny moments <laughs> one of the funniest things for me was uh, when they're all having that, that chat under Bleo Barris is when yeah, the dandelions being attracted to this person, that person. And then we get the description of dwarven women. And it's just like, it's like a matter <laughs> description of dwarven women that we have from like, like, like something like Gimli would say. And I thought that was really <laughs> funny. So I love, I love, I love the whole Sheldon Skaggs and all the dwarves and all the kind of funky, different little characters. And obviously, obviously there's some very serious moments, but there's a lot of really funny moments in those conversations. Just like the people this fawning over dandelion i just love it. i just thought that was so funny yeah it's one of the reasons he can make the straightforward non-subtle political messages work even m- more by like changing the tone really quickly again that's a it's a thing you can all you have to be skillful to be able to do that as a writer i i assume <laughs> not having done it myself <laughs> but by just being able to dress it all down and and bring down the mood or change it to from whatever mood he sets, whether it's serious or poignant or disturbing, he can quickly bring us back to smiles and chuckles, if not outright laughing. And that's, that's great. I fried him a little too hard. See, even his teeth are charred. What's the matter with you, Dandelion? Are you going to be sick? <laughs> Even his teeth are char. Can you picture that? I mean, maybe you shouldn't picture that, but woo. The way Peter Kenny reads that too, she's so like nonchalant. She's like, eh, I fried him a little too hard. And it rhymes. <laughs> I fried him a little too hard. His teeth are charred. It's just, oh yeah, it's very, it's very poetic. That's good. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. That's why Dandelion was throwing up. That rhyme was too awkward. He's like, oh, that yeah. rhyme is. Oh, that rhyme gauche. was awful. I didn't like. He doesn't it. mind the, the corpse. He's just. 
That's his poetic sense. I love how he's just flummoxed by her eating chicken with a knife and fork. And he's like, oh, that's why Geralt <laughs> eats chicken with a knife and fork. That's yes. such a funny mo- thing for him to include. <laughs> Geralt and Geralt. Oh, like when you have friends who are together and you're like, oh, now they both do that thing. <laughs> yeah, they both do that thing. <laughs> I get a huge kick out of Reince not being able to remember whether Geralt's name is Geralt or Gerald. Yeah, yeah. Very meta. That Geralt. still happens among people talking about The Witcher when they haven't like really dived into it, which is understandable, but it's still hilarious. Our, um, our transcription software that I use to help with the editing also can't get over <laughs> that name. It doesn't know... It's no Gerald, right? Nope, not Gerald. <laughs> my, my, that's what my little cousin says. So I find that really funny, Gerald. I was like, I was like, no, man, <laughs> Gerald. <laughs> I, I even taught the transcription software Care Morin. It knows that, but it still can't get Geralt because it's too similar to a, another word. Like Care Morin, there's nothing else like that. So it's like, oh, okay. Thank there's you. There's a lot of you know, words but... <laughs> in this. There's a lot of words in this chapter that are like. Okay, transcription, man. I can just yeah. imagine what an AI would make it sound like. Just, just We'll it. start having those in our funny moments section because this is our first episode of, yeah. of Blood of Elves. I'll have some transcription follies probably in future episodes that we'll include in this section. Well, here's another quote, yeah? Yeah, this comes when Sheldon Skaggs is going off on his rants and one of the elves is like don't it's not smart to or polite to insult someone else's religion or mock someone's religion so he says i'm not mocking anything protested the dwarf i don't doubt the existence of the gods but it annoys me when someone drags them into earthly matters and tries to pull the wool over my eyes using the prophecies of some crazy elf <laughs> some prophecies of some crazy <laughs> elf yeah but then we realize it's not crazy because it's, fun, it's funny that he's saying that. yeah and his point is right though you agree with his point yeah. even though Ithlene's prophecy yeah there's some merit to it but he's like we all have been there like oh don't you god's got nothing to do with this stop bringing that up it's got you're you can't nah. <laughs> that's I <love> you <laughs> i love this next one yeah this is hilarious this is yennefer talking to dandelion about deekstra he asked me to convey that this time your report should be to the point detailed and under no circumstances in verse prose dandelion Pros. <laughs> I like the charred corpse, but a lot more pleasant to imagine. You wonder yeah. what is he sa- like? Is he sending poems? Oh really? Is yeah, he really yeah, updating he's... Dijkstra with poems? <laughs> yeah, 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 That's yeah. like the perfect characterization of Dandelion. He's sending his important spy reports in rhyme. He thinks he's clever that way. He's like I, 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 I was, <laughs> I was thinking to myself, how would he glorify and fan- fantasize how Rance's teeth are charred, and how would he say it? And I'm like, what? I'm like, what did he actually say to Dijkstra for Dijkstra to say this? It must have been something like really stupid. You know what I mean? He must have just been like overly talkative, very, very flamboyant, like usually Dandelion is. I want, I want to see what letters he sent to Dijkstra. Yeah, right. Yeah, we need we need we need photocopies of those letters. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love when the because when the performance ends there's like the way it's described this is i wish we had a visual of this but i i don't think we'll get it since the show's moved past this point already which is that the way it's described is the the show ends and they're also moved that no one makes a sound but then there's a goat that goes and then that <laughs> <laughs> then everyone starts to like oh wow that was amazing 
So he's the goat that broke the silence, the important goat. And then the apprentice brings out a hat to like collect coins and then then he's like, actually he sets it back down and grabs a bucket instead <laughs> and dandelion is like good job smart move kid <laughs> have a mind your tongue beardy <laughs> yeah. beardy that's it's really not it doesn't it's really a weak insult yeah. like beardy like Kyle, someone called you Beardy or me Beardy, I'd be or like, hey, like thanks. <laughs> what if we called McCall Long Hair? Like, oh, you know, <laughs> that's a, whoa, his damn. beard. Chill his beard out, must man. be as long as him. Maybe that's why there is. A... <laughs> yeah, he thinks it's oh, anyone without a shaved face is. Mm, mm. They're very beardist. Wow, that's rude. So who who noted? One of y'all wrote down that that apprentice that collected the money. We just never see him again, do we? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I find it hilarious that Dandelion's apprentice is there fairly prominently through the first scene, and then he's gone. That's it. Yeah, no he, more apprentice ever. He's playing along. Yeah, like, I, I took note of that when you pointed that out, because I didn't even think about that. And then, I, then I, when I went back to read it one more time, I saw, like, he's harmonizing with him. So he's he's not just, like, a roadie or something. Like, yeah, that guy is part of the performance. <laughs> well, well, I guess Dandelion left him behind. <laughs> <laughs> one of the gnomes is like tries to actually stop the arguing which is fun to have the gnome be the one that did that the gnomes are apparently the oldest race there like they've been around the longest so they're like maybe in a sense you could say they're the the wisest uh, if you want to think about it that way if, if age gives you any wisdom at all he doesn't say it this bluntly but he basically says stop arguing let's drink <laughs> And he says, but he does say, our throats are dry from all these emotions. <laughs> from all the yelling, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty diplomatic. It doesn't work, but it's a good try, and I appreciate it. <laughs> Rianz has quite a few things that, like, a lot of really nasty words. I, uh, yeah, I took down the list of all the things Rianz calls dandelion, because it's really funny. It's not, boy, uh, these, are some, these are some heavy insults. Okay, nasty rhymester. Runt, scum, piece of scum, arrogant nobody, clown, sheep's head, and little cock. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was just like, how would Rians know? Yeah, he was being the alpha in that situation, so I guess yeah. it made sense. Toxic another, masculinity. Another great line is, Dandelion was mistaken, as was usually the case when he was too confident. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, such a person. Yeah, great character. And part of that confidence is expressed in this line where he's like, if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to have Mama Lantieri's bouncer kick you so hard, you'll fly over this town, people will take you for a Pegasus. And, of course, <laughs> that doesn't phase Rance at all. But I think it's funny because... If y'all remember, throughout most of the series, Dandelion is going to ride a horse called Pegasus. So, <laughs> which is absolutely right, hilarious. Right. And then we have the naughty graffiti on the tree. Just... <laughs> on the tree, <laughs> defiling the oldest oak, the like the great tree of the world, like the world tree with naughty graffiti. That's it for our funny moments. That, as y'all can see, there was a, a pretty solid dose. Yeah, that should be the norm, I would think. Not always, though. There's oh, gonna yeah. be some chapters that are that are somber, but but we'll we'll find the fun where we where we can in those cases. Blood of Elves <laughs> is, is fairly lighthearted, I think, for most of it. But yeah, yeah, be... the next couple of books get a little more serious for sure. Yeah, a little darker. Time yeah. of contempt <laughs> and baptism of fire are a little heavier. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> it starts to get pretty dark. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> but we'll have fun with them because, you know, it's fake darkness. <laughs> We're not exactly going over real world events, even though we sometimes refer to them on our show. Difficult times are approaching, she said quietly. Difficult and dangerous. A time of change is coming. It would be a shame to grow old with the uncomfortable conviction that one had done nothing to ensure that these changes are for the better. Don't you agree? I agree. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I think we all do. That's a great sentiment for the series and for real life. I'm glad you pulled that quote. Good choice there, Mikhail. You also picked a great one to start off with as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. True that. Well, thanks to our supporters, Maura Lee, Ryan B., Rhett Crisman, Cato Vivas, James Gannon, Lucas Mies, LC, Amy Lantrip, Alejandro Martinez, and Neil Anderson. Much appreciated. To Maura Lee and Amanda for making those donations in the chat this evening. Thank you very much. I I would I would love to buy these two dinner together, but we're seeing each other at different times this year. So at some point we will be able to do that and share That's right. the love you guys share have for us. <laughs> our our plan going forward is to do about one episode a month, occasionally a little more and occasionally a little less, depending on what else is going on in the world. And we will. Also, switch to TV show mode whenever there's a show on. And then we'll just switch back to book mode when there isn't. So it should be pretty straightforward. And we'll do our best to stay on schedule. You can follow me on Twitter. Ink as Rain is my handle. You can find me doing the Level 7 Access podcast. We were talking about Miss Marvel. We are going to do a collected episode on Kenobi because we just could not get our shit together to Mm -hmm. do episode by episode. But you can probably find my thoughts on Kenobi if you look at my Twitter because I'm not shy about that. You might want to budget um, some uh, extra time for that, folks, if you are going to read her tweets on Kenobi. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and I haven't talked too much about this on here, but The Dragon Prince Season 4, the show that I write for, is coming out this year. We have a really cool preview thing that is online, and if you want to check that out, do that or watch seasons one through three if you haven't yet we're proud fans of me cal and we definitely are proud of her being a writer for dragon prince we think that is very cool i know it's it's like very under the radar thing here i think you deserve Mm -hmm. more notice for that i think a lot of our listeners aren't aware that you write for a pretty well-known tv show and one that has a lot of acclaim we talked about all the different references here. We talked about a few Star Wars references, a few Lord of the Rings ones, comparisons and stuff. And yeah, it's yeah. Just a great time. We're just, <laughs> ex- we're just excited to be fans of all this and uh, certainly excited to be here. If you do want to support us, like I said, the $1 button, $5 button, or $10 button helps us out very much. And we appreciate everyone that supports the podcast. Thank you, everyone. And we do believe in women choosing their own destiny and their own rights. I'm going to end it with that. Thank you so much, everyone. Good night. Bye.